So, does God think of you and me as superhero children? Or SAS soldier children? Bundles of fighting energy, fully loaded with combat equipment and the skills to use that equipment. Well, we might make a case for that view of ourselves. After all, the New Testament letter to the Ephesians calls us to put on the full armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. The Apostle Paul refers to his co-workers as fellow soldiers. Paul himself says he has fought the good fight. So there's certainly a place for thinking of ourselves as soldiers in a fight. We do need to have that mindset as we live for Jesus. We are called to energetic combat. But remember, our question was not... How are you and I to think of ourselves? Our question was, how does God think of us? How does he view us? And when we come to scripture with that question, we might find initially that the answer is a bit disappointing. But in the end, it's deeply reassuring and comforting for us. Because when the Bible pictures God's children, it pictures us as sheep. We find the picture again and again, most famously in the 23rd Psalm, but lots of other places too. We saw another example as we read from Ezekiel chapter 34 earlier. And the reason that might be disappointing for us to learn that God pictures us as sheep is because sheep are a bit dopey. Sheep are not very competent. Sheep wander into all sorts of trouble. And sheep are just about useless when it comes to fighting skills. They have no claws, they have no sharp teeth, no ability to sting. And even when they do have horns, their horns are so curled up It's hard to see how they could ever pierce anything. Sheep can bleat and they can run. And as far as I can tell, that's about it. They're not very impressive. They're not very awe-inspiring. They're vulnerable and they're not very clever. According to the Bible, when God thinks of his children, that is the reality he sees. Now, yes, the Bible uses words like royal and holy about us, but those are gifts God gives us. When it comes to who we are in ourselves, sheep are a very good picture. As I said, that might disappoint us, but when we look closely at the picture, we find that God doesn't use it to scoff at us and to make fun of us. Although you and I could all benefit from having a laugh at ourselves now and again, as we admit how much we really are like dopey sheep. But God doesn't use this picture to laugh at us. When the picture is used in the Bible, it is there to show we are precious to God. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1076, or in the larger print Bibles, 1666, John chapter 10. And before we read this, we need to be aware that chapter 10 is a continuation of chapter 9. It's not a separate incident. In the original text, there were no chapter divisions in the Bible. The words of Jesus in chapter 10 are a response to what has just gone on in chapter 9. When we looked at that chapter over the last couple of weeks, we saw Jesus heal a man born blind. 
And in the aftermath of that healing, we saw how the Pharisees treated that man. As they questioned him and then insulted him, bullied him, and finally threw him out of the synagogue, which was the, the meeting place of the Jews, the center of the Jewish community. That man was abused by those leaders. But at the end of chapter 9, we saw Jesus come to that abused man and envelop him in his care. And what we're about to read is Jesus' commentary on what has just taken place. Chapter 10, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So, when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. And here's how it works. To begin with, Jesus paints a picture for us in these verses. And then in the second part of the passage, he picks up on two details in that picture and he applies them to himself. To begin with, verses 1 to 6 give us a picture of reality. An endangered flock with one protector and provider. So a picture of reality. An endangered flock with one protector and provider. In verses 1 to 6. It's important to realize, as we've already mentioned, the picture of a shepherd and his sheep had a very long history in the Bible before Jesus ever used that picture. And this picture has a very long future as well. Because as we'll see, this picture comes up again 
in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The picture of a shepherd and his sheep has great significance in the Bible storyline. So even though you and I may know very little about shepherds and sheep, if we want to deepen our understanding of our relationship to God, we need to learn to appreciate this picture. So here's what we've got in these opening verses. There's the sheepfold, an enclosure, maybe a fence of some kind, maybe even a wall, an enclosure with a gate. We're to think of quite a large enclosure where several families kept all of their sheep together in one place at night. The families would band together to hire a gatekeeper to guard the way into the enclosure to keep the sheep safe at night. There's a sheepfold and then there's the shepherd. Notice how well the shepherd knows his sheep. We said the enclosure would have included lots of sheep. So at the end of verse 3, when the shepherd comes to the sheepfold, he calls his own sheep by name. The shepherd knows the name of every one of his sheep. They are individually known. They are called one by one by the shepherd. Stephen, Susan, John, Ruth. Those probably aren't popular sheep names, but you get the idea. The shepherd knows his sheep personally. They're not just numbers to him. He knows their names. And in verse 4, when he has called them by name, he goes on ahead of them. He leads them. Now, I know very little about sheep. But I do know this is not how shepherding works in this country. Because I've seen sheepdog trials. And the way it works in this country is the sheep are driven from behind. They're not led from the front. But in this picture, the shepherd leads his sheep. And verse 4, the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They prick up their ears when they hear that one voice. And they follow that voice because they know that voice belongs to the one we can trust. That voice belongs to the one who protects us and leads us to nourishment. We're safe to follow that voice. Why is it so important for the sheep to follow the right voice? It's important because the sheep are terribly vulnerable. That's the dark side of this beautiful picture. There are intruders about Intruders whose only intention is to abuse the sheep. Verse 1 calls them thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers who try to bypass the gatekeeper by climbing in some other way so they can get at the sheep. We've said Jesus is about to explain this picture in the next verses. But the point to pick up on at this point is the presence of these abusive intruders in the picture. One writer says their aim is to brutalize the sheep. These people do not love the sheep. Verse 5 calls them strangers. These people are not neutral in their intention for the sheep. They are enemies of the sheep. Their aim is to fleece the sheep, and not in a good way. They want to take advantage of the sheep instead of guarding, guiding, and nurturing the sheep. And as Jesus paints this picture, he has a specific group of people in mind, the Pharisees. Remember we said chapter 10 is a continuation of chapter 9. In chapter 9 we saw a particular endangered sheep, the man born blind. We saw him being brutalized by the Pharisees. 
They didn't know the man. And they didn't care to know him. They wanted to use the man to get ammunition for their campaign against Jesus. That was their only interest in the man. And when he refused to give them that ammunition, the Pharisees turned on him. They belittled him. They abused him and then excluded him. They threw him out in the street. The man born blind is one of the endangered sheep Jesus is talking about. And so are you. Because there are intruders in your life as well, aren't there? Now, they might be religious imposters like the Pharisees, people who present themselves to you as speaking for God, but they don't love you. Their aim is to use and abuse you. Religion can be big business. Not every religious voice you hear is going to lead you to green pastures. They'll tell you nice things and promise you wonderful things, but they will lead you to brutal disappointment. And it doesn't have to be a specifically religious voice. There are other brands of brutalizing leadership available. There are other sources of misleading promises. Friends at school who are out to lead you into trouble. Gambling companies who are only too happy to fleece you. But there are plenty of other intruders around, other thieves and robbers. Maybe it's medical. I think that fits with the picture here. Illness and death are intruders, aren't they? They're not the way things are supposed to be. They are strangers who come and whisper darkness and despair in our ears. They tell us, I've got you, and I'll take you away. You're mine. I own you now. Maybe for you, the intruder is a particular situation in your life that threatens to drag you into darkness. You feel that situation has you by the throat. And it's going to strangle you. Whatever thieves and robbers might be climbing into our lives, the reality is we are a vulnerable flock with only one true protector and provider. And it's the second half of that statement which Jesus is going to explain for us in the rest of the passage. Verses 17, 7 to 21 describe our protector and provider. Our protector and provider. As we said earlier, having painted the picture, now Jesus picks up on two details in the picture and he applies those to himself. First, in verses 7 to 10, Jesus is the gateway to life in all its fullness. Jesus is the gateway to life in all its fullness. Now, we will get ourselves tied in all sorts of knots if we keep looking back here to verses 1 to 6 and trying to fit what Jesus says here into that picture. If Jesus is the gate, who's the gatekeeper? How can Jesus be the gate and then later on be the shepherd? Don't think of it that way. Think of verses 1 to 6 like a picture on the wall. Jesus isn't trying to find meaning in every part of that picture. He's just going to point to a few bits of it and use them to help us understand him. In verses 1 to 6, we heard already about the sheepfold, and we heard it has a gate. There's just one way for the sheep to go in and out. And here Jesus says, that's me. Look again at verse 7. Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. 
All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What's Jesus' point? His point is, he is the only way we can experience the life God has for his people. That's who the sheep represent, the people of God. Jesus is the only gateway to that life. When verse 9 says, those who enter through him will come in and go out and find pasture. Again, don't get tangled up in asking, what is in the sheepfold represent and what does outside the sheepfold represent? Now, Jesus' point is simply that there's a life God has for us and he, Jesus, is the only way to access and experience that life. In the Bible, to come in and go out is a way of talking about the entirety of life. Life with all its comings and goings all of its stages and seasons, all of its phases and all its places. The only way to flourish in life as a whole is to come to Jesus. He is the only gateway to God's life. Verse 9 talks about finding pasture. That is what sheep need. They need nourishment from green, rich pastures. For sheep, that is as good as it gets. And for us, the life God has for us is as good as it gets. In verse 10, Jesus describes it as life to the full. That includes not only nurture and nourishment, it includes security and contentment. Not being at the mercy of the intruders we heard about earlier. Those thieves and robbers are around, of course, doing their best to get at us. But when we enter into the life Jesus opens up for us, those enemies cannot steal us away. They cannot kill us or destroy us. Not in any ultimate lasting way. Jesus is the gateway to secure satisfaction. We noticed already Psalm 23 is one of the background passages to this one. And in Psalm 23, the psalmist says to God, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It's the same picture. The enemies are there. They are present in and around our lives. And they are as hostile as ever. But when we come to Jesus, he provides a feast of good things. Good things those enemies cannot ruin or snatch away from us. He provides us with green pastures and quiet waters that our enemies cannot destroy. Psalm 23 also says, God's goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. A life permanently connected to God's never-failing supply. And Jesus is the only way into that life. If you are trusting in Jesus, this is what you have in him. Don't spend your time and energy browsing around for other gateways to a secure and satisfied life. You don't need to try other spiritual paths. You don't need to explore other ways to find contentment. Other paths and other gateways are dead ends, all of them. They lead to disappointment. They leave you at the mercy 
of thieves and robbers who will take advantage of you. Life to the full only has one entrance gate. That means anything else that looks like an entrance is a fraud. It won't help you. Instead of looking for other ways to access green pastures, let's press further up and further in to the green pastures Jesus has for us. Let's spend more time being nourished by His Word. Sometimes you and I can feel like God is failing to nourish us when the reality is we are turning away from the nourishment He has set in front of us. He has prepared a table of good things for us. He has filled our cup to overflowing. But we're looking for nourishment in other places. We're rooting around in rubbish heaps and withered grass. thinking we can find nurture and contentment and security in other places. Like more money, more entertainment, better stuff, better sex, more exotic holidays, the next promotion. It might all be good in its place, but if we look to any of that for life to the full, we're looking in the wrong place. We may as well look to dust and ashes to fill and satisfy us. What you and I need is more of Jesus. What we need is to know him better by listening to him more carefully and following him more closely. And that leads us right into the second detail picks up on from the picture we started with. He's pointed to himself as the gateway to life in all its fullness. And now in verses 11 to 21, Jesus is the Savior Shepherd. Jesus is the Savior Shepherd. When you hear the word shepherd, what comes into your mind with that word? Maybe you think of a kind of hippie figure strumming a guitar on the hillside, surrounded by cuddly little lambs frolicking in the sunshine. And maybe shepherds had days when that's all their job required of them. But those days would have been pretty rare. We've already heard about thieves and robbers who want to get at the sheep to kill and destroy them. Now we hear about wolves. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In the Old Testament, David was a shepherd. And David recalled times when he had to fight a lion or bear that came for his sheep. That was the reality of shepherding in the ancient world. It may still be the case in parts of the world today. It was not an easy option. It was hazardous to look after sheep. And so if the person looking after the sheep was only in it for the money, well, it just wasn't worth it for them to stick around when the wolves or the lions came. No paycheck is worth getting chewed to pieces for. No paycheck would induce a person to lay down their life for the sheep. The only person who would do that is someone with a deeper commitment to the sheep. Someone like David, the shepherd who rose to become Israel's king in the Old Testament. When David described his days as a young shepherd and the battles he fought for the sheep, 
David called them my father's sheep. That's the difference. That's the difference between the true shepherd and the hired hand. David risked his life for the sheep because they were the family's sheep. They belonged to his father. And that, in a nutshell, is why Jesus Christ is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. They are his father's sheep. And so Jesus is deeply, deeply invested in the welfare of the sheep. In our reading earlier from Ezekiel 34, God pointed to a future day when he would place one shepherd over his people. My servant David. Was God promising to raise David from the dead to lead God's people again? No, the promise was that the commitment David showed, first as a shepherd of his father's sheep, then later as the leader of God's people, that commitment would be seen again. In the future, God would bring a new, greater David to lead with a deep commitment to the sheep that had been faintly glimpsed before in the leadership of David. And so in verse 11, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the word translated good has the sense of worthy. doesn't mean Jesus is a good person. doesn't just mean that. It means he is the only one worthy to be our shepherd. Because his commitment to us is so great. Jesus' commitment might have some similarities to the commitment David showed, but it far outstrips it. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We heard earlier how the sheep follow the shepherd because they know him. They recognize his voice. That was the picture. Now here is the more wonderful reality of Jesus and his people. Jesus says, he and his sheep know one another like he knows the Father. Look at that again. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That is the incredible level of relationship Jesus invites us to. A relationship where we are individually known by name. Claire, Alan, Katie, Mark. A relationship where like Jesus and his Father, we come to love what the other one loves and enjoy what the other one enjoys. A relationship where, like Jesus and his Father, we come to delight in holiness and hate sin. In verse 16, Jesus mentions his one flock. The one flock he is calling from every nation of the world. Do you wonder if you belong to that one flock? How would you know? Well, the test is, do you listen to Jesus' voice? That is the mark of real sheep. A real sheep recognizes the good shepherd's voice and follows him. Do you recognize Jesus' voice as the voice of the Son of God? The Savior of the world. Do you listen to Jesus by reading his word, the Bible? Looking for it to nourish you spiritually. The way that you look to other food to nourish you physically. Do you work to understand that word from the good shepherd and put it into practice? 
Or do you find Jesus' word too boring to bother with? I have to admit that preachers can be boring. But if you find Jesus' word boring, if following him sounds like an inconvenience, then you may be right to wonder if you're really one of his sheep. Because his sheep listen to his voice. They delight to listen to his voice and they follow him. And the reason you and I can come to this good shepherd at all is because he laid down his life for us. He died to save us not from wolves or lions or bears. Our good shepherd died to save us from the eternal destruction our sin deserves. Jesus' death on the cross was not accidental. It was not forced upon him. It couldn't have been forced upon him. Those Roman soldiers had no hope of taking Jesus against his will. He chose to pay that price. Down in verse 17, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now, Jesus is not saying there his father didn't love him until he laid down his life. The point is, the eternal love between the father and the son is a love that leads the son to obey the father. That's part of their great love. It was the father's command that Jesus lay down his life. And it was the son's delight to obey the father he loves. Earlier in the same verse, Jesus says he lays down his life of his own accord. It's the father's will and it's Jesus' will. Jesus loves to do his father's will because he loves the father. And the father loves the son who takes such delight in obeying the father's will. Why did the father and son unite in the laying down of the son's life? Why did their eternal love for one another result in that? It was because incredibly, incomprehensibly, their eternal love flowed out to include us. Us lost, wandering, willful sheep. The Father and the Son loved us and the Son laid down His life because that was the price to be paid. If you and I were to receive life and enter into the life to the full with the Father and the Son. For that to happen, our shepherd had to be the savior shepherd. The good shepherd had to become the sacrificial lamb. Maybe you wonder if Jesus really will lead you to green pastures and still waters. Will he really nourish you even in the presence of intruders and enemies? Will he really keep you secure? No matter what thieves and robbers come along. Well, if you wonder about that, consider what he has already done for you. He laid down his life for you. Doesn't that give you confidence he will do the other things for you also? You can be sure that having gone to such great lengths to save you and make you his own, he will do the lesser things as well. Like keeping you and leading you even through the darkest valleys 
of life. Why would our shepherd pay such a deep personal price for us only to abandon us when some trouble comes along? Look at the cross and know the one who laid down his life to save you will do whatever is needed. Whatever is needed to nourish and protect you all the days of your life. Look to him, lean on him, and he will supply you. from his never-ending stores of goodness and love. And they are never-ending stores. As the last book of the Bible describes the great multitude around God's throne, we're told what eternity holds for that great flock God has gathered. In the vision of Revelation chapter 7, we are told, of that great flock round the throne. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The good shepherd became the sacrificial lamb and for all eternity he will continue to be the shepherd of his people. The good shepherd's care never comes to an end. His sheep are eternally precious to him. You are eternally precious to him. So come and rest in his love and care. Let's encourage one another and do that together now in our final songs. As we sing, come to Jesus. And, yet, and then, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I think again, if you don't mind turning to the screen at the back. And we'll pick up the words from there. Come to Jesus, rest in him. Sure.
The good shepherd bless you and keep you. The good shepherd make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The good shepherd turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.